Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh! It's another knockdown. He's not getting up, Jim. He get up. He's not getting up, Jim. He's not getting up. No, he's been knocked out. It's over. Mamma mia, he's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. AJ does it in style. Beaten down, hopeless, without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Rigondeaux quit. It's Fistionados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, fight fans. It is Tuesday, August 28th, and this is the Fistionados podcast. I'm your host, Evan Rutkowski, former HBO sports marketing executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistinados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistinadospod. There's not a whole lot out there this in August, but did a Q&A this week with a lot of great questions, so it's actually going to be a longer pod. Let's get right into it. Looking back at the results of the last two weeks, on Saturday, August 18th, ESPN had what turned out to be a pretty good main event where Brian Jennings wins by KO9 over Alexander Dimitrenko. Also on the card, we saw Jesse Hart win by KO3 over Mike Gavronsky, and Shakur Stevenson won a wide decision on the ESPN Plus portion of the card. The fight card averages 686,000 viewers for ESPN. Also on Showtime's Facebook feed and later Showtime Extreme, Tyson Fury wins a unanimous decision over Francesco Pianetta, and Carl Frampton wins by KO9 over Luke Jackson. Showtime's YouTube page had over 70,000 views for this, which I thought was significant. I did not see a rating for Showtime Extreme, but I thought that YouTube page number was significant. On Saturday, August 25th, ESPN had what I thought was a a great TV card with Jose Pedraza winning a unanimous decision against Ray Beltran in a well-matched fight that was good TV and, and quite frankly, full of drama up until that knockdown in the 11th round. Also on the card, Isaac Dogbe had a KO1 over Hidenori Otaki, and Michaela Meyer won uh, by a third-round KO on the TV portion of the fight. Fight card average is 532,000 viewers. Isaac Dogbe, wow, looking great. Look, purely in terms of quality TV and having boxing on during the month of August, I felt like ESPN delivered here. It's the month that gets the worst TV ratings across the board, basically for everything. And high-level boxing in general really doesn't happen in August. But this was two weekends in a row of really solid, well-matched fights. I was pleasantly surprised in the Jennings fight, and then we got a little bit of everything in that Pedraza-Beltran card. As for August 18th, going into this night, I did not think either fight uh, either fight was going to be noteworthy. 
But uh, ESPN had a pretty interesting fight in the main event. 686,000 viewers, like I said, for the middle of August is a really strong number for them. I mean, when I was at HBO, our numbers regularly dipped in August, sometimes as much as 20 or 30% off comp fights, basically. And this one averaging close to 700,000 viewers is, is as an average, that's, that's really good. I'm not sure what the close nature of the fight says about Brian Jennings, because he should really be in a different class than Dimitrenko. And, you know, to give credit to top rank, they were trying to make this fight originally for Jennings against Joseph Parker. Still credit Jennings for finishing the fight and putting Dimitrenko away, even though I thought the stoppage was really early. I hope Jennings gets that next big fight after this and really gets paid. He's got some talent. He clearly stays in shape. He's an interesting story. I don't really see what's out for them like what's out there for him at least right away. Top rank, I guess they had, they maybe still have. It's kind of been a little bit weird with Joseph Parker. Um, and I'd still be interested in seeing that for sure. I mean, Parker probably has to regroup after that loss to White and, and get a comeback fight. And, you know, Jennings needs a win against an opponent like Joseph Parker, quite frankly, to put him in the conversation to even get a Wilder, AJ Fury, or White fight. It wouldn't be the worst thing to put him in against another fighter on Dimitrenko's level. But, you know, if I'm top ranked, the whole point of having Jennings is to lure a big heavyweight onto ESPN for a big primetime fight. So, you know, I don't want to risk him in with a big puncher again. I mean, not that Dimitrenko's the biggest puncher in the world, but, I mean... You almost saw it all all go away for Brian Jennings right there. Uh, moving on to Hart, that, I mean, that was a complete mismatch. It's very clear he wants another shot at Zerdo, and that's not a bad fight for top rank to make. The major things I noticed uh, on this night, other than what was, you know, fun, good night of action, uh, was just to take a step back and look at everything in terms of marketing. One of the things I really talked about in the last episode was the commitment ESPN had to top rank in terms of treatment. Like it's a league and the promotional materials are a really strong part of that. The Brian Jennings promo of his knockouts was just really bad. I mean, maybe they didn't get courtesy video from HBO for his fights, but he's fighting guys that are extremely out of shape. It just looks terrible. It's a terrible look. It's basically exactly the opposite of what I was talking about was working for ESPN and Top Rank uh, in, in the last episode. And then the promos for the 25th, when you were watching them on the night of the 18th, they were terrible. I mean, they, they were awful. There was like this horrible graphic of a fire on top of, you know, the Beltran Pedraza preview. It And it just felt like ESPN and Top Rank were dropping the ball on promoting their brand during these fights. I mean, it is August. It's lesser people watching. It's lesser of a stage and a platform. But come on, guys, get it right. You know, quite frankly, the marketing materials may have hurt the fight on the 25th because 532,000 is not a strong number. Like I've said several times already, August is a tough month. I think a dipping number like this shouldn't be a shock to anyone at ESPN, but it's still tough to look at. And Pedraza Beltran was a great matchup. It was an even odds fight going into it, and although it wasn't the biggest fight out there, there was high drama. One note, sort of going forward, while the Beltran storyline has been overtold, what people, especially in in the marketing PR world of boxing, realize is this fight perfectly represents a lot of things 
about the sport that affects that marketing PR world in terms of weaving together a larger narrative and building to bigger fights. You know, Beltran probably maximized his talent by winning that title and having so much written about him and so much, so many promotional materials that, that talk about him. And now Pedraza, he gets a little bit of that rub off Beltran's storyline by winning. And this is gonna, this is the circle of life in boxing. Pedraza will soon get fed to Lomachenko, and he'll get another chance to rebuild himself at the right moment. Even if he looks good against Lomachenko, and no doubt, I mean, Aram's right, he will have a better chance of looking good than Beltran, but he's got, Aram's right about that, he's wrong, you, you know, we all know Pedraza really doesn't have too much of a shot. Pedraza will just be another storyline for Lomachenko when all, all this is over. I mean, the fact that Pedraza lost to Gervonta Davis helps set up a storyline of Lomachenko and, and Tank Davis ever want to fight. In the bigger picture here, I guess, my overall point is ESPN and Top Rank got a lot of mileage out of Ray Beltran. I think Ray benefited from it as well. He got some decent paydays, not that real big one, but he got some decent ones. He got a bigger profile. Whatever Ray chooses to do next, uh, and, and maybe it is continue to fight, maybe it's not. You'd have to think this whole thing has served him well, but best of luck to him in, in whatever he does next. For the deep dive this week, I wanted to do a Q&A. I mean, it's a slow month, not a whole lot going on. Before we even get to that, though, one sort of bigger piece of news in the last two weeks that came out, which was Steven Espinosa going on record about potentially moving the Spence Garcia fight which was originally supposed to be pay-per-view in 2018 and, and moving that to 2019. This kind of move for Showtime says a lot, especially in the context of what the end of the year looks like for them. We can make several assumptions here. First of all, they probably spent 75% of their budget for boxing in the first six months of the year, and to their credit, they absolutely delivered. But on the back end of the year, we aren't really getting much as fans. I mean, I love Garcia Porter, and more on that later. But we're not talking about any other fights close to that level for the rest of the year. Part of the reason that Wilder Fury and Spence Garcia were set to go on pay-per-view is precisely because Showtime doesn't have the budget to put them on regular Showtime. There's no doubt they would be really nice fights on the linear channel, these are not big pay-per-view fights at all. I know I've been over this. I don't want to beat it in the ground that much, but I just thought this piece of news was noteworthy. I can't see either of them doing over 250,000 pay-per-view buys as long as they happen in the next six months. I mean, who knows a year or two from now. But I think that's really being generous. Like, There's a strong possibility that both these fights do less than 150,000 pay-per-view buys, especially if they happen in close succession to each other. They contain a lot of the traditional recipes for pay-per-view disaster. None of the fighters have fought on American pay-per-view before. The heavyweight matchup is with a foreigner, and in the case of Spence Garcia, Garcia would be moving up two weight classes to fight Spence, who, in addition to being big and physical for the division, is also in the prime of his career rather than on the downside. You know, I've discussed this before, but... You also need to remember that Wilder had an offer to fight Dillian White for like seven or eight million bucks in the UK, which he didn't take. If that's true, then Wilder couldn't have taken this fight for much less than that, or at least had a very comparable guarantee. 
So when it comes to Wilder Fury, the UK dollars from the fight would be big, no doubt, but way less than if the fight were actually in the UK, because assuming the fight card starts at 9 p.m. Eastern, that is the middle of the night in the United Kingdom. Also, given that Tyson Fury could have fought another easy fight or two and waited for that Dillian White or Anthony Joshua big payday in the UK, he's got to get paid something too. Let's just say both fighters together, their guarantees are somewhere around $10 million bucks, which is both fairly reasonable and also just a nice round number for the math here. That means that the fight probably needs to do 300,000 pay-per-view buys in the U.S. just to reach that guaranteed dollar mark. Now, that isn't crazy. I don't think it'll hit that number, but it's not a crazy number. It very well could hit it. And you might say, okay, well, that doesn't count the gate. That doesn't count the U.K. revenue, the other foreign rights, sponsorships. And while that's true... It also doesn't factor in that it's not Wilder's promoter who would write the check for that guarantee. It's Showtime. Because remember, Showtime is really the one in the vulnerable position here. Showtime did a lot of the work developing Wilder. And part of the reason Espinoza has been so vocal on this issue is because he doesn't want to lose Wilder to zone. And that, my friends, is a real thing and probably the major reason Showtime pay-per-view is asking you to fork over for Wilder versus Fury. If this was truly a free market, Wilder should have probably signed a deal to fight White and then Anthony Joshua, both in the UK. He probably could have guaranteed himself $20 million for that, even if he lost against Dillian White. But Espinoza had to frantically come up with something for Wilder, just something, or at least risk losing him to that White fight. But given the amount of opponents, both in the UK and in Eddie Hearn's stable for, for Wilder, I mean, Espinosa and DiBella, quite frankly, they risk losing Deontay Wilder to DeZone and Eddie Hearn basically on a permanent basis. I mean, if you're Eddie Hearn's or if you're, if you're Deontay Wilder's advisors, how could you not advise, you know, no matter how much loyalty you and, and Espinosa have shown to each other, when it's that big of money at stake for fights like that, you got to consider leaving. So, I mean, that's basically why you're seeing Wilder versus Fury. And Wilder versus Fury isn't a bad fight. I'm actually fairly interested in it, especially based on Fury's performance there. I mean, I think he looked he looked fine. Like he he actually looked like he was working his way back into shape. But going back to my original point, I think the reason that we're seeing Spence Garcia move to 2019 is because someone looked at pay-per-view buy forecasts for the Wilder Fury fight. And then looked at Wilder would have been what Wilder would have been guaranteed for the fight, plus the history Fury has of not always showing up, and made it clear that you can't take two risky pay-per-view fights in a short period of time. Showtime could have lost a lot of money if both fights didn't hit the necessary break-even buys, and that would have been disastrous to their budget. I quite frankly hope that Spence Garcia goes away, because if it's delayed until February or March then why can't the winner of Danny Garcia versus Sean Porter fight Spence? I don't even think Mikey Garcia is a loser in this equation. I mean, sure, he doesn't get the big fight against Spence, but there are plenty of other fights for him at 135 and even 140. I mean, he should really be fighting Lomachenko, top rank issues or not. That makes so much more sense. And I'd ask you as fans, does simply moving the Spence-Mikey Garcia fight to 2019 change 
anything about whether you'd pay for it or not. I mean, this is a big moment for both fighters. If Spence were to take on the Danny Garcia, Sean Porter winner, I'd much rather see that on regular Showtime or pay-per-view. I mean, I'd love, I'd obviously rather see it on regular Showtime. And if they deliver that as one of the big fights in early 2019 and Keith Thurman looks good in a comeback, then why can't we see Spence Thurman on pay-per-view in the fall of next year? As far as Mikey Garcia goes, the people who like this fight say it's a can't-lose proposition for Mikey Garcia, but I don't completely agree with that. I think Mikey Garcia has a lot to lose. If he beats Spence, well, that's incredible, and I'm wrong. And, you know, even if that's the case, he'd still have to stay at welterweight and fight bigger guys, probably shortening his career. But there's no doubt that'd be the most financially lucrative move for him. I mean, he'd get paid big time. If he loses to Spence, though, I think he loses a lot of leverage in a potential Lomachenko fight, which I'd imagine is a very similar profile and pay to what he'd get for Spence. He's got some similar, he's got some big fights out there for him, and I don't know why he's insisting on staying it with Showtime for everything. There really isn't an inherent advantage to that. He could fight Linares after Linares gets a comeback fight. He could fight Pacquiao, especially given the rumors that Pacquiao might go to DAZN. Pacquiao Garcia would be a great fight for DAZN, and Mikey would hurt his leverage there if he lost Spence and didn't put up a good showing. Even if he doesn't get one of these bigger fights, I mean, there's definitely going to be options for him at 140 if he's interested in that weight class once the World Boxing Super Series is over. A few other quick news and notes. On that rumor of Pacquiao going to the zone, I think this is great. He wouldn't have to fight in the U.S. again, so no more tax issues. And we can see him fight Amir Khan, maybe some other fun ones, you know, obviously the Mikey Garcia one I just mentioned. I love Pacquiao, but at this point in his career... It just makes so much more sense to, for him to fight on ESPN Plus or DAZN, like those types of platforms. He'll still get decent cash when he fights, but no one is forced to fork over 70 bucks to watch him fight. And he's a big enough name, too, where he should, you know, he should be a big enough name to build subscription bases for those kind of places. Like, I think, I think he really is a big enough name where you can use it as uh, something to build on in that kind of subscription model. Another one, and I know this wasn't a major story, but I certainly flagged it. Burchell versus Roman, that fight going to ESPN Plus instead of HBO. Look, I'm going to do a deep dive one of these podcasts into what's happening at HBO, but this one hurts for them. I mean, it's not that it's the best fight in the world, but we are now at the point where there is just lots of evidence that HBO doesn't have the boxing budget to compete for these types of fights. And these are the fights that they really based their 2017 and 18 boxing brand on. (sighs) Oy, I don't know what to say. Okay, let's get to the questions. We had a lot of good ones. All right. At Ryan Scalia on Twitter asks, would love to hear your thoughts on Golden Boy's ESPN content in relation to whether it gets picked up next year. Originally reported that it was 18 shows in 2017, 24 in 2018, and an option on 2019. Great question, Ryan. Let me start by giving some viewership numbers just for some context here. The most recent Golden Boy card on Friday, August 17th did 189,000 viewers on ESPN2. 
but let's look up a higher profile one than that. Let's on Friday, May 4th, when Ryan Garcia fought on ESPN2, it did 281,000 viewers. And it got a .07 rating. I mean, that's not a great rating. It was the 107th ranked cable show of the night, but the second best show on ESPN2 for the entire day. The best one was actually Jalen and Jacoby, which didn't do as many viewers, but did a better rating uh, that day at 3 p.m. because less people were watching television at that point. That's all significant. I mean, Garcia was a big prospect. I think that was the Spike O'Sullivan main event um, or, or undercard. I can't even remember. It's not a ter- <clears throat> it's not a terrible number for ESPN two, but there's basically no one at ESPN patting themselves on the back over that kind of rating. When Golden Boy fought on ESPN rather than ESPN two, the ratings I could find for this were as follows: Friday, July twentieth, they averaged three hundred seventy five thousand viewers. Saturday, March twenty fourth, four hundred seven thousand viewers. I've, off of memory, it, most of the fights seem to be in that kind of world as well. Maybe there was one or two that outperformed those numbers. But let's talk topping about numbers. Let's address the elephant in the room here. Top Rank is clearly ESPN's top provider for boxing content right now. ESPN did their deal with Golden Boy before they did their deal with Top Rank. And they were always more serious with Top Rank. I mean, also, when you look at it, Top Rank just, they've delivered an audience that Golden Boy hasn't. Now, They've had much more support in terms of bigger budgets to make bigger name fights, more marketing, PR brand support from ESPN. But Golden Boy is giving audience numbers, you know, they don't really move the needle that much. Top Rank's audience numbers are significantly higher. I mean, even their lowest audience numbers, even like that show August 25th in the middle, you know, of a dead period, that's still outperforming the best numbers that Golden Boy are getting. It puts everyone in a slightly awkward position. If you're ESPN, sure. Golden Boy is giving you all that content at what I imagine to be a great price. And there's some kind of library element to this from my understanding. I'm not really sure exactly what it is. But when this deal was announced, the boxing world thought they'd be seeing a lot more of David Lemieux-level fighters on it. Now, there have been at times when we've seen some undefeated prospects go on. Like, they put on some really good fights from that perspective. Like they, they've put undefeated prospects against each other when they have, it's been great. Realistically speaking though, that really only appeals to core fans and the ratings don't dramatically improve for those. Uh, but philosophically, I think there's something to that. How much boxing do you really want to show? And do you want to confuse casual fans as to what you're showing if it's not top rank? I mean, that's a great question for ESPN, especially for ESPN Plus, where it already feels like everything runs through top rank there. I mean, Golden Boy Boxing is okay, but you don't want to alienate top rank over the deal. And if there's other programming that has a higher upside that's worth taking any chance on, if you're ESPN, I mean, maybe you go with that. Maybe that's the right move. Bigger issue for Golden Boy is, do you always want to play second fiddle to top rank on ESPN? This is where you really need to look at what your company's goals are and how you can accomplish them. Golden Boy is the top provider at HBO and Facebook Watch, and unfortunately, neither means a whole lot right now. HBO is barely putting on fights, and Facebook Watch is just starting out, You know, and main events is involved in that deal as well. 
if I'm Golden Boy, I look at the landscape and I think to myself, let's put our resources into Facebook Watch rather than ESPN. I'd take a chance with them where your upside is much higher than it is on ESPN. You can always maintain a good relationship with top rank and make the Lomachenko, Linares type of fights out there if you need to. But overall, I'd just stay with HBO. I'd hope they write the ship. And then I'd focus on Facebook Watch rather than ESPN for your developmental level shows. Golden Boy does a lot of other streaming, and they've shown a strong commitment to developing younger guys. I mean, I think this is what you do. The final piece of this puzzle is Top Rank. They could probably tell ESPN just to kick Golden Boy off so that they're the sole provider of boxing content on ESPN. To me, that's a mistake. I think you don't want to alienate Golden Boy when they have key fighters that can make big fights on the ESPN platform. Golden Boy and ESPN want to renew? Okay, you live with that. If not, great. All in all, if I was at ESPN, I wouldn't renew it unless you determine you need that library for the ESPN Plus app based on everything that's going on in terms of subscription levels and how you can sort of leverage that. Um, if you're going to get rid of Golden Boy, though, I'd make sure to keep a great relationship with them through the process. Be really upfront with them and, and, and do it in a very classy way because I think you never know how things go in this sport and you may want more boxing at some point. I don't think you need it right now though. Mikey L. Mariachi Manifesto asks, this may or may not be your business of boxing in your business of boxing wheelhouse, but I'd be curious on your take on how could the ABC groups be removed from boxing or their impact influence greatly minimized in a one world championship or one world champion landscape become the standard again. Mikey, I think there is a very short answer to this question, and then there is a longer, more complex one. The short answer is if you support the World Boxing Super Series and their programming on DAZN or wherever it's aired from here on out, you are effectively removing much of the influence that these groups have in the sport. If the Muhammad Ali trophy gets recognized as the trophy that a fighter gets from participating in that tournament, if that gets recognized as the legit title, then who cares about any of the sanctioning body belts? In fact, I'm very interested to see what happens with the sanctioning bodies and what they do for next season at Cruiserweight with the World Boxing Super Series because they will likely want their belt at stake in the finals again due to how big the fight would be due you know, remember they take a percentage from the fight or a fee of some kind, you know, there's a, they have a vested interest in being involved for the big fights, no matter what, but creating that Muhammad Ali trophy, it kind of trumps all the alphabet belts in effect. And, and it really does everything you're asking for. And I think if you are sick of that kind of crap coming from the sanctioning bodies, that's what you're hoping for. The longer answer here, is that without the World Boxing Super Series, in a larger trophy, so to speak, as the, as the prize, you actually need the belts to work together to encourage unification fights at each weight class. This means that you're never actually getting enough leverage to dictate terms to the sanctioning bodies, which is exactly what would be happening if you support the World Boxing Super Series. But the reality is that fighters like belts, and as long as fighters are willing to pay a percentage or a flat fee from their purse, belts will exist. If you just accept that as something that won't change, then this becomes less 
about their influence and more about what you can do to find a true champion, which is really what you're asking for here. That's really the end goal. Because in my opinion, as corrupt and malintentioned that sanctioning bodies can be sometimes, there are actually many times where they are useful. They There are many avoided fighters that would have never gotten a title shot if it weren't for fighter mandatories for these kind of belts. And many times these are really good fighters. Look at Golovkin. I mean, he's a great test case. He had to take a lot of fights for low money just to position himself to get belts early on. And then when he started to become a star attraction himself, he had to overpay opponents. David Lemieux made about $2 million bucks to lose his, I think it was the IBF belt, to Golovkin. You know what? I am all for the David Lemieux of the world to earn $2 million bucks for a fight like that because it'll probably end up being his career best purse, and I want those fighters to make as much money as they can. We see it all the time on a lower level where a seasoned veteran makes a mid-six-figure or even a low-seven-figure payday so a top prospect can finally get that shot at a belt. And we'll see a version of it on ESPN this fall of Lomachenko and Pedraza fights. Pedraza will probably get paid a million bucks for that to lose his belt to Lomachenko. Those are extremely important for those seasoned vets. I mean, many of the B-level veterans that don't make great money until, you know, they don't really make great money until they get a belt. And, and more importantly, not only do they get paid uh, to make a big fight against a prospect or an established commercial draw type of fighter, if they win, they'll likely have a run of a few fights where they make big money. So if a sanctioning body can contribute to that for certain fighters, in my opinion, great. And from a marketing standpoint, if there wasn't a great angle to a fight, but you know there's a title at stake, I mean, that script writes itself. I'm just as guilty of that for some of the lower level fights on HBO over the years that didn't have a great narrative. In general, though, I want to be clear. I agree with your sentiment. I'd love to not have four sanctioning bodies that many times give out multiple belts, you know, also, unfortunately, the, lim the lineal titles, I don't want to, maybe huge stink is a bad term, but they sometimes they get a little stink on them as long as people like Adonis Stevenson hold them in major divisions and don't really do anything with them. The only other candidate would be the ring or ESPN rankings. But, you know, while I think both parties do a pretty good job with those rankings, they both have major ties to promotional companies at this point. The World Boxing Super Series falls short, too, because if they don't have a tournament for a division, then it gets tough. Like, you know, you can support them all you want, but as long as they're only doing three weight classes a year, I mean, that's that's all you're getting. Um, at least with that, there's a meritocracy element to it. Um, I shouldn't even say there's a meritocracy element to it. It is a meritocracy with the World Boxing Super Series. You know, I wish there was a better answer even if you look at the UFC with their one title system and how fighters actually get title shots in crowded divisions, there are plenty of examples of how this system isn't great either. Um, but from an overall standpoint, I think it does work better than what we have in boxing right now. At Cormac 1971 asks, I'd be interested to know what the prospects are for ESPN plus being available worldwide. I know top rank, have an output deal with Box Nation for Ireland UK, but is that a long-term deal? Also would like to know how foreign rights are generally dealt with. Really interesting question, Cormac. I would assume right now that it will take several years to come to fruition, but that ESPN Plus and any other streaming outlets 
will put a higher value on acquiring worldwide rights for the express purpose of taking ESPN Plus worldwide and extracting monthly fees from lots of different countries. You are starting to see more of that and more of the cost plus model for traditional television and SVOD services. SVOD services uh, are essentially streaming services like Netflix or YouTube, uh, YouTube Red, whatever it's called now. I can't even keep it all straight. But YouTube Premium, I think is what it's called. They essentially pay a premium right off the top to buy out all rights in perpetuity for streaming services, including worldwide rights. Um, that sounds complicated. It's really not that complicated without getting too much into the details of it. And so I work in both traditional television as well as sports. This is more of a traditional television thing, uh, like a non-sports thing. It essentially means that you pay a percentage over the cost to the producer of a show, and in doing so, you buy out the worldwide rights in perpetuity. And if streaming services do this, especially sports streaming services, it could affect boxing soon. So let's just look at this from a Netflix perspective. Netflix does this whenever possible in the traditional TV world. I believe they play, they pay the cost of the show plus 20%. So in like the Seinfeld example, basically Netflix would, if, if, if you are a producer of television and you make a show, let's say it's Seinfeld right now, you get to constantly sell the rights for the reruns to other places, be it streaming services, you know, I think Hulu might have it now, or they had it at one point, you know, local television, you know, the reruns at 5 or 6 p.m., 11 p.m., that kind of thing is traditionally where you see it in America. Netflix basically just buys out the possibility of you doing that and pays you 20% over the top, you know, and, and they get the rights in perpetuity. If you actually come up with a hit show like Seinfeld, you kind of get screwed because you lose money on selling all those reruns. If you just make a normal show that disappears after a year or two, you get 20% more money than you would have. And it works out really well for you. Um, I could see ESPN Plus and DAZN trying to do that as they build their brand. It certainly makes things easier because they can just stream the same content across all of their markets if they try to go international, which you know I'm assuming they're essentially trying to do. Traditionally, um, let's move into pay-per-view for a second. Traditionally for pay-per-view, each side of the promotion gets a, a percentage split, and that includes selling the foreign rights. Uh, the biggest fights can sometimes get decent cash, as you can imagine, and sometimes the deals get complicated because fighters of certain nationalities might withhold their country's rights, and they might get a better deal for them. Look, I wasn't involved in any of that from a pay-per-view standpoint, so I can't speak to the finer print um, on it, but that's usually fight-by-fight -fight basis for those bigger ones. Traditionally, for non-pay-per-view fights, when it comes to foreign rights, my understanding is that promotional companies have their own output deals with foreign countries, similar to what you mentioned with top-ranking box nation, box nation. To me, going back to what I said earlier, these deals are going to start getting more consolidated. I don't view something... This is not going to change overnight. I don't view this as something that's going to change overnight. If ESPN Plus wanted to enter the UK market... 
there's already a number of obstacles. Like that's almost a whole different podcast. Um, but all of this is a long drawn out way of saying, I expect this to start changing. I expect it to start slowly. There will definitely be a version of boxing content aggregation and it will likely work to the benefit of hardcore fans, especially in parts of the world where boxing is a really popular sport. Um, that's what I would say to answer your question. I know it's a really long-winded answer to it. Tommy Boxeo asks, is the new PBC deal with Fox a time-by deal or not? Also, if this deal is going to be official, does that mean PBC can get away with making bad fights again? Tommy, this info is being held really closely to the vest by the PBC, but from what I've heard second and third hand, and per others who would have also either heard it first or second hand, this is happening. So this is happening. It's not going to be a time buy. As I've been over in the past, this makes sense given Fox's new strategy where it focuses on live programming rather than traditional dramas and comedies. And also, as you said, the real question here is if the quality is going to improve over the time buys that are happening right now. To the second part of your question, can the PBC get away with making bad fights again? I'm not optimistic here. This is all going to be about viewership. So if the license fees are high enough and if the PBC wants to put some of their top product on Fox, then I think they will get some good ratings. Um, there are coherent arguments to make here on both sides. For instance, I would have guessed more fighters under the PBC banner would have already gone over to Eddie Hearn and DAZN, but maybe part of the reason that hasn't happened yet is because Al is planning on having certain fighters move to Fox and others stay with Showtime. But look, I doubt Fox is going to hire a matchmaker, and if they aren't, then I wouldn't expect great fights because historically Al has been very he's been very strong as a manager, but he's not been a great matchmaker when the onus has been on him to put his fighters in tough. You know, he's quite frankly been terrible at coming up with a successful programming strategy for the PBC during the whole time by. I don't really even think that's controversial to say at this point. I expect to see better fights, but I doubt Al will put his best fighters in tough on Fox. I mean, Espinoza, to his strong credit, has been the only one able to force his hand on that. And that, even on Showtime, hasn't been a regular thing until 2018, really, until this year. If you're Al, this is a real touch point in the PBC's future because he clearly has too many fighters to keep busy on Showtime, and he needs another outlet. You know, there's also like we've talked about a lot on this show, rival streaming services coming into the sport with a lot of money. So there's a huge opportunity cost by taking the PBC to Fox. And he needs to continue getting that amazing loyalty he has from the boxing talent that he represents. And I guess what I mean by that is for this to be successful, Fox has to be paying enough that it's not worth taking some of those fighters over to DAZN and just simply acting as their manager. He actually needs to make good fights on Fox, which means the money has to be somewhat good. You can piece that together as a puzzle where there's reasons to be cautiously optimistic and you might see a better product. I'm just not expecting it. Historically, we haven't seen it. I'm not expecting it. I wish I had a better answer for you.
Lawrence Alexander writes, have they released purse amounts for Jennings Dimitrenko with the increased dollars from ESPN? I'd imagine the top ranked fighter pay is going to be much better than it's been. Lawrence, well, I haven't seen any purses from the New Jersey State Athletic Commission. And as I've said in the past, everyone should take those with a grain of salt. You are absolutely correct in imagining that ESPN fighters will be better paid. But I do want to caution that while fighter salaries will increase, and if you're interested, I did a whole podcast, I did a whole episode in my podcast on this maybe like two months ago. Fighter salaries are not tied to the dollar amount in this deal. We can even look at the fighter salaries announced from the more recent August 25th ESPN card where Beltran got 200K, Pedraza got 125K, Dogbay got 65K, and Otaki got 25K. There is no collective bargaining agreement here. Just because ESPN is paying top rank more money, it does not mean that the fighters will automatically get paid more. You're only getting paid what you have the leverage to negotiate, and most fighters are on multi-fight deals and won't have a chance to renegotiate their deal for quite a bit. I mean, we've already started to see the value of certain fights go up. Top rank ponied up big time to get that Mo Hooker-Alex Salcedo fight via purse bid. And I think you'll see more fights go to purse bid after that. There were two major bids for a fight that would have, you know, probably been slotted in at half the price or even less just a year ago. I also think that they will continue paying nice purses for the big fights, you know, that get a lot of promotion. I mean, they've been doing that pretty well so far. I wish we did have the purses for the Jennings fight, though, because I think that level of fight is still a big question in terms of how much the fighters are getting paid. I think there will be a range that might not make sense on a micro level for this, like like you'll see cards that get over 600,000 viewers without any big purses. And then you'll see cards where you think to yourself, wow, I don't understand how they're paying purses like that when the show is only getting 100,000 more viewers. Like, you know, August 25th, the purses are a great articulation of that. I mean, what I'd say to that is you have to think about these things in the aggregate and remember that certain fighters are worth a lot more to top rank than others for a variety of reasons. If top rank is ever going to have a major heavyweight fight on ESPN, which I'm sure they want to do, then Brian Jennings is worth quite a bit more money than a lot of other fighters of comparable talent. And any top rank fighter who can make a fight with Lomachenko or Crawford right now is going to be worth significantly more than a fighter in a different weight class who gets the same level of audience on ESPN. That might be luck of the draw, but you're only worth what you have the leverage to negotiate as a fighter, and you're still in the middle, if you're still in the middle of a previously negotiated deal or other external factors have limited your leverage, then this new ESPN deal won't affect you yet. Okay, Troy, or at my baby blue, or at my 81 baby blue, says... I often feel like I have a voice in this sport, not that I can pick up the phone and call someone, but by the rating I provide just by watching the fight. So my question is, how important is my one rating or pay-per-view buy to the bigwigs that promote the fight? Troy, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, then you know I have complicated feelings about pay-per-views. 
But I would say this to all hardcore fans out there. Pay-per-view fights are a lot like elections. Every vote counts. Now, on mainstream fights, those are like election blowouts, landslides, where someone wins by a ton of votes and each individual vote matters less. Canelo Triple G2 is a bit like that. Sure, the promoters are out there working tirelessly on it, and you know my next episode of this show is going to be about exactly what they're doing for Canelo Triple G2, if I think it's working. But in general, they're assuming that core fans like yourself are just in on a fight like this. They're not actively courting you, but rather the casual fan for a fight like this. Don't take that as if you don't have a voice. You do have a voice. Where you really have a voice on... It's on any pay-per-view fight that's going to do under four or 500,000 buys. In my election analogy, that's a lot more like a local election or a really close election with big political implications. If you buy a fight like that, you, or more importantly, people similar to you, can be the difference between them making money or not and them putting on the same kind of fight in the future. And with services like ESPN Plus and DAZN, whether you subscribe right away or not could be the difference between investors pulling the plug on boxing on their services or not. You have a real say in the success of ventures like those. If you're behind it and you speak positively about it to friends and on social media, you matter a lot. Santo asks, regarding pay-per-view undercards, do the purses for those fights come out of the promoter's share? During your time at HBO, was any premium put on pay-per-view undercards? I'd love to see stacked undercards a la the UFC, but understand the economics are way different. I also don't know if the risk-reward is worth it. If 1 million people are already buying the card, how many pay-per-view buys can a great undercard fight really add? Then again, I see Golden Boy getting praised for the Canelo Triple G undercard, which to me only highlights how paltry many pay-per-view undercards have been. Sadly, I'm used to it. Santo, a lot to unpack here. First on the purses, it's it's not really the promoter's share. Uh, I, I didn't do the accounting for these things, but my understanding is that Each scenario is different, especially when it's two different promoters working together. Like if it's just top rank working on a big pay-per-view, it's a little bit different. But when it's Golden Golden Boy and Tom Loeffler, you know, again, each scenario is different. But Lemieux and O'Sullivan are Golden Boy fighters. They have Golden Boy contracts that probably reflect a certain expected payday for a fight of this level. But in general, this this stuff gets filed as a cost in the same way that a marketing spend or a press conference or any other expense does. Remember, HBO and cable companies, they're getting their cuts too. So there's lots of different ways that everything gets chopped up before the main event fighters really see pay-per-view upside. With regards to the undercards, I think there are two different ways to look at like a big one million buy card. Um, no, there is no real financial impact on having a good card, uh, undercard for Canelo versus Triple G. Most people, especially casuals, are buying the fight for the main event and the main event only. But there is something to be said about brand equity and putting on great fights for casuals in a big moment like this. You put on an action fight, 
Casual fans will remember it. They're more likely to watch those fighters and your overall product again. Hardcores will appreciate it more. And they're your best brand ambassadors. And quite frankly, they're most likely the people explaining what's happening to the casual fans at a fight party or in a bar or anything like that. Uh, so I think there's still value in putting on a good undercard, especially at the right price. I don't think you need to put on you need to uh, put on a really high profile fight as the top undercard, but just by stacking it with with well matched fights, I think that makes a big difference. It is way different on lesser pay per views. That's all, that's a different category. Here, I think you can look at what Tom Loeffler has done by putting Chocolate Tito on as an undercard for Triple G Lemieux and Triple G Jacobs because he knew those pay-per-views were a tough sell even to hardcore fans and Chocolate Tito might put it over the edge for some. So I think in the scenarios where it's less than that 400, 500,000 buy mark and, and certainly when it's less than 250 or 300K, you can make a real difference, especially by targeting specific audiences you know, with Triple G Jacobs, for instance, you've got Triple G's fan base, you've got Danny Jacobs' fan base, Chocolate Tito's fan base. They're all different and unique, and they all bring a lot of things to the table. It's a, it's a good way of thinking in terms, and I don't just mean by nationality and ethnicity. I think it's it's the types of fans that appreciate Triple G. And that you know, probably similar to the fight type of fan that would appreciate Chocolatito, um, just in terms of stylistically what they bring to the table. I think that's smart, and I think that actually does increase pay per view buys. Especially this was before Triple G has hit the level that he's hit now. Um, a lot of great questions, guys. If I ever do this again in the coming months, keep them coming. I think it's a good thing to do for slow periods of time. I'm always fascinated by the questions you guys have, and, and I'm happy to answer them. Uh, this is my life for years, and I loved it. I still do, so I'm happy to talk about it. Let's go to the preview section. We're on Labor Day weekend. Ryan Garcia is fighting on Facebook Watch Saturday, September 1st, and I mention this just because... I am curious if Facebook can clear up some of their issues from the last fight. Carlos Morales is not someone I'd expect to trouble Garcia too much. Uh, so this is really more about what kind of numbers a social media star like Ryan Garcia can bring to the table. On Saturday, September 8th, we have a great night of fights. Let's start with HBO, where Juan Francisco Estrada fights Felipe Orocuta. Donny Nietes fights Ashton Pauliste. I'm butchering all these names. Sorry, guys. Kazuto Ioka fights McWilliams Arroyo, all at Junior Bantamweight, Super Flyweight, whatever you want to call it. Interesting card from HBO to put on a week before the real big one, the pay-per-view rematch of Canelo versus Triple G. Normally, HBO would put on a much more high-profile card with bigger names. There are no odds out on these cards yet at major betting sites, which says a lot about what HBO is doing right now. I mentioned it above. I'll mention it again there. That being said, these should be well-matched good fights and good action. But on the same night, Showtime, 
We have Sean Porter fighting Danny Garcia for a vacant WBC welterweight title. Your Dennis Ugas versus Cesar Barrio Nuevo, also at welterweight. Garcia is a very small favorite here. He's way under 2-1 to one odds. For those who understand odds, I think it's like minus 160 on Danny Garcia. I think it's plus 130 to uh, Sean Porter. That basically means that the matchmakers did a wonderful job. That's really what that means. Big credit to Showtime for getting that one made. I will say, I think all of us need to see where this division is headed. If the winner is going to fight Errol Spencer, Keith Thurman, then not only this is a great fight, but I'm excited about what this is building to. If, however, this just ends up being the one random big welterweight fight that gets made in 2018, then kudos for making this one, but I'm starting to care less and less about what Showtime and what the PBC are doing at this weight class. This is a really strong and interesting weight class, and Showtime should want to build a pay-per-view star here with everything they have going for them. We've talked about this before. I've almost talked about this ad nauseum, but I just want to make it clear from a network standpoint. Your life gets a lot easier if one of these guys emerges as a pay-per-view star at 147. That basically means if that fighter fights once or twice a year on pay-per-view, your budget saves a lot of it's not that your budget saves a lot of money you save a ton of money what you what would have been your biggest fight or one of your biggest fights on the network that year becomes pay-per-view it allows a different fight to move into that slot and it gets a b-side paid without using your boxing budget it's critical to do that and i think showtime they they will look back on this if they don't build a pay-per-view star at welterweight out of what they have going on right now, they will have screwed this up. That's, I guess that's the best way of phrasing it. Um, that being said, I don't think they're that far away from building a pay-per-view star. And I think how they set up their first half of 2019 is critical here. Um, in terms of the other cadence here, I'm going to review the marketing PR plan for Canelo Triple G2 next episode. Uh, so that'll come out fight week. And then after that, it's some of the other stuff I've talked about. I want to look at the zone more closely. I did an episode on them, a on them a while ago, but now we're starting to have actual stuff happening for them. I want to look at HBO's year. There's other stuff I want to do. There's going to be more articles on the ring. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for sharing. Um, I love doing this show. It means a lot. And, and I appreciate you guys listening. So uh, looking forward to the September 8th fights. Really looking forward to September 15th. September's a great month. Anthony Joshua, September 22nd. That's also great. This is going to be a great month coming up. August was a little slow. Kudos to ESPN, actually, for putting on some good fights during a month where usually I'm watching preseason football and and quite frankly i don't need to be watching preseason football so thank you to espn for doing that but now we're stepping up into big boy territory in september can't wait for these fights take care guys enjoy them did you get what you was looking for with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.